I recently sat down with the architect, philosopher, and urban planner, Leon Creer, to talk about his theories about design, culture, economics, and society as they relate to architecture and psychology. Not all of Mr. Creer's views are my views. However, he is an enormously influential and a very intelligent person. I hope you enjoy the interview. Unfortunately, it did not fit into a uh, traditional interview flow, so I edited some of the most interesting parts of our conversation uh, by topic, and those follow now. These are Mr. Creer's thoughts on craft and skilled labor. I come from my my parents. My father was my mother was a musician, and and my father was in a, a tailor, working for the clergy and the, you know, the bishop and so on. So they were craftsmen, and they employed five to ten people depending on the work, and they were fantastic people. I mean, the people he employed, they loved to work there. Mm. And my father was a kind of artist who who never showed off, but when somebody asked him, we were just looking at him how he 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 how he showed what how to to do a detail known. I mean he was a real artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and that is the point of craftsmanship is an incredibly productive and incredibly interesting uh, mode of of uh, of production, which is never boring, because the the craftsman always produces an individual, whereas the industrial worker is always alienated from his work. He just does something; he can be replaced tomorrow by anyone. Huh? Mm. And William Morris wrote, "But there's no it. skill. It's a way of keeping there's people unskilled. No skill, no skill, and the, the only people which is a kind of control to keep a, a workforce unskilled." Yeah. You know, because then they're replaceable and then you don't have to pay them. Totally. Yeah. But if you have a pianist, if he has a heart attack, you you know, to replace him by <laughs> you have to <laughs> they, they are not the concert hall is not full of them, maybe by chance. But they so individual talent, every individual has a talent. And and th- that Aristotle writes in politics about this. I always quote that. I mean Virtually the only thing I, I quote of so, but that the economy must be defined by individual talent, not the reverse. Mm. That the economy, the form of production, influences what people should do. Mm-hmm. The economy has to be shaped by what people are good at doing. How do you rationalize that? How you organize so that you have a functioning society is a mystery because the only re- I don't I don't see much hope, at least not in my lifetime. <laughs> Well, you know, we went from a country that made things. We were manufacturing. And now we have an economy that's totally removed from anything real. You know, like all the manufacturing is overseas. You can't go get a job anymore. Everybody that's younger than me, they can drive a car for Uber or Amazon delivering packages, tearing their car up and and causing problems for a pittance. And they're immediately replaceable or they can work food service. But food service is also during a pandemic or uh, during a recession going to be something that people don't have money to afford. So that's your whole economy. And then everything else is is gambling. I mean, you look at the stock market, it's gambling. It's not Tesla's valued at four billion or something and they don't sell any cars. It's because people know the stock will go up and if I put my money in it, I can catch this wave and then 
but it's not a company that someone's investing in because it's profitable, you know, and, and that's the entire well, that thing. Was, that, that was the side that at least where Trump was not wrong on everything, but at least he said we should get back production to America. That was yeah, the right it, idea. And um, I wish that it wasn't couched in the racist language, but I mean, American manufacturing is something that should come back. Yeah, if you yeah. want to have a, a state that doesn't fail. And that, you know, the not only industrial work, but also craftsmen. Well, at least in America, do you still and and that was the interesting thing in Seaside. There, there was a lot of good craftsmen. No, it was easy to find. It was not in Germany. These reconstructions of historic buildings now in Berlin, Potsdam, Frankfurt, Nuremberg, everywhere there are reconstructions. I was involved in some of these, and you are never. The problem is never a shortage of craftsmen. If you have the right drawings, no, the right they instructions, you you get the right builders. So that can be revived very easily, and it's very very efficient. Uh, for instance, in Brussels was destroyed was the first city which had been entirely destroyed by the French artillery in 1680, 89, I forget, but end of 18th century, 17th century. That entire city was rebuilt including the main square, the, the Grand Place uh, with the belfry, famous belfry, Flemish uh, houses with incredible, incredible amounts of glass. All that was rebuilt within two years by craftsmen. Hmm. And uh, there's another interesting quote from an economist, Mill, Mill's famous English economist from the 19th century. He said that we understand, we think that uh, cities are inanimate objects. Mm. Instead, if you would accelerate, observe the city and accelerate what happens to buildings within a lifetime, they would be like bodies moving, changing things. Even if they are, remain the same, they would be moving because everything is constantly being redone. Even buildings which look like they are built for permanence constantly change in color materials of the base of the roof or the chimneys <laughs> things move huh? and that is all this is he says you know, the activity which is there anyway is then deployed if a town burns down traditional towns burn down many times and then were rebuilt often very quickly mm. stone took a bit longer but uh, Oh, and with very little bureaucracy in the Luxembourg, the, the the best quarter in Luxembourg was built 1900 to 1910. Stone palaces like you have not, not seen anywhere, even in Rome, doesn't have better. Done by architects from Cologne and Paris and Brussels. And, you know, this was done by craftsmen who had come from Italy. By the, eight to 10,000 craftsmen who were living in tents in impermanent wood shacks to build the city. During that construction, which built the most beautiful stone bridge in the world, 60 meters diameter, arch, unbelievable. Uh, during that was planned by one person, one person in Cologne and one town architect who had not even an office in the town hall. He worked from home and he had no employees. 
so the, the whole thing, when you have a working culture, you don't need uh, all the norms which tell you how high a table should be and so on, because that is the culture. And they don't need, when you say a sentence to talk correctly, you don't need some professor of grammar to tell you all the time how you should speak and articulate and how long it should take and so on. And once the culture is dead, then it becomes really difficult to do and you know to build that boundary or Kyla, it's just it's an nice. institutional wisdom and you get rid of that wisdom. You can't just go back and snap your fingers and train it because no one knows. And that's what happened to the psychotherapy profession. You wow. know, it's like the, the things that I'm writing, you know, you, you, you go back and you read a, a psychoanalytic journal from like the, the 1970s and before, before Reagan and Thatcher and the subjective, you know, uh, turn everything into a number stuff. And there's ideas about what you could actually do with a patient right. in therapy, you right. could you could sit there and, and say this stuff and you, you open academic journals now and it's just like we extrapolated 10 studies and then put the information into a shred spreadsheet controlled for a different variable. And the only reason that they exist is because your Ph.D. is based on you know, like your academic standing is based on how many people cite your article. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. if you cite a ton of articles, then a lot of people will cite you. And it's yeah. not written for a human. It's written for a search engine, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So you have a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're trying, you know? <laughs> On recent classical architecture and building projects. Yeah, because the, my problem is that at least we have lots of colleagues who do now the right thing. When I started, I tried to find people and it was almost impossible. There was one in Belgium, one in America, one here and there. And well, now uh, you're being imitated without being attacked. I mean, there's something like what? Alice Beach. What do you think of something like that that definitely is? Yeah, no, no, it's very, I mean, but it's very inspired by your work, you know. Well, but it's it's really it's traditional architecture. And that is I, I grew up in totally traditional town, which was almost undamaged. And and most of the people who are involved, like Andres Duani, who was the chief planner of uh, Seaside and Alice, he grew up uh, first as a child in, in Cuba and then in Barcelona. And then he, his family returned to, to America. But most people, you know, who are involved in that, they had that experience, often mm -hmm. as, as children and or, or by traveling. Mm -hmm. No, there is a lot of people, but the, the, the question is really, and there's now even in you know, the Congress of New Urbanism, it's a lot of a lot of people practicing this. And one can say if if America or even worldwide this would be applied, this very simple theory, because it's not personal, it's it's what towns had to be like in order to to function. Mm -hmm. uh, before the fossil fuel. And then in the 19th century there, or late 19th century, there were theories evolved. There was a German, there was an, an Austrian, and particularly a, a, a Finnish guy who wrote about polycentric cities. They didn't use the terms, but they, they had mm -hmm. understood, often based on you know, Paris, which had been reformed into urban quarters by mm -hmm. under Hosman which allowed Paris to function till today, because many people who live in, in arrondissement almost never leave it. 
there are people who are yeah. never I mean that's the the kind of extreme huh? but that you can't actually live in a quarter in urban quarter without um, and I I picked up these different theories and because they were self-evident and uh, and particularly people like Andras Duani and um, James Künstler they they promote it they help promote it and and get me out of isolation get me all the work I did in America was always because of Andras Duani <laughs> this is my first job now in America in, in Virginia is not is the only one where he was not involved on the theory and philosophy of design I was curious you know like your theory of design you have a quote at some point about nature like the, the design does not come from nature but it is inspired by it an analogy or something and i mean you have like someone like frank lloyd wright who is trying to deconstruct the natural space and make the thing blend in you know and he would make the students like go pick a wildflower on the scene of where you're going to build the building and then deconstruct it and turn it into a pattern and then put the pattern somewhere in the house but your work it seems to consider the setting a lot but the work doesn't look like the setting you know like Things like Career Tower, you know, this, like the sketches that you have with the the metal gates hanging or a giant sheet blowing in the wind on the Italian countryside. It doesn't look like the countryside, but it talks to it. I mean, do you? It's it's really the I, Hannah Arendt spoke very Hannah Arendt. You know the philosopher, fantastic, mm -hmm. the human condition, mm -hmm. and she she says that architecture is an artifice, and it is the artificiality which makes it properly human because man is in the natural environment is not the space for man he needs to construct his own space to become properly human um, because animals have that direct relationship to to nature but we don't and we are you know we look for shelter which is not just in a, a grotto so it's it's interesting it's an artifice, but yet which is properly human. Uh, whereas the the industrial artifice is no longer human. That's a strange it's thing. It's contra-human. It wants to turn humanity into something else. Well, it's okay for cars, which, you know, because they move and they're never... But if you build buildings which are completely cloned, huh? like if you see now the destruction of Mariupol, have you seen the... I mean, the, the, the buildings, nobody will ever regret of losing those buildings. No, mm. It's just disgusting. It's just the human lives which are being slaughtered. But the, the, you know, that architecture will not create any nostalgia for something which was worth having. Mm. So what, what I don't know what will be replaced by, but the the kind of the primal forms of architecture that your work is trying to kind of dig up that will last a hundred years they're not they're a thousand years they're not a trend you know there's something inborn in humanity i mean do you have an idea of where that comes from like what the painter is channeling is that something in our evolution is it something in our uh, it, it seems well, like a almost mystical kind of architecture a spiritual kind of quest what is called timeless architecture Christopher alexander wrote the book called timeless architecture and the title is is really what's count. The book is full of 
uh, Christopher Alexander himself. I mean, I find him terribly boring mm. and pompous. And I had a short experience with him teaching. It was just impossible. I mean, he's the most uh, arrogant, uh, false, modest person I've ever encountered. But the title is is really what, what counts. Timeless architecture does not mean that it is timeless. It's timeless as long in relation to human human lifespan, that you can actually live in something which is not just, and that is where Hannah Arendt is also interesting because she says that architecture has to, or to, in order to create the public space, it has to transcend the lifespan of human. It has to, to be much longer than a single human, but it has to to outlive the society in order to to become a society and um and that is poses goes back to you know, the, that would be in in an enemy of hyper consumption consumerist exactly. disposability it's not against consumption but against consuming architecture because we are consumers anyway we eat and reject you know and transform chemically but architecture shouldn't be and that is what actually industrial uh, thinking has done that it has industrialized it has transferred the industrial uh, the spirit of industrial consumption mm. even into the environment and now the planet huh? now they want to save the planet but look at the schemes on the atlantis project The, with the Atlantis project, when that broke up, what was it an ideological difference between you and the uh, you know the people trying to build it, or was it a lack of kind of lack of funding? What is it that made that? They were they were very famous uh, gallery owners. They had an enormous mm -hmm. collection of modern art. They started a German political party or something, didn't they? Too no, no, no. Oh, they didn't. No, not at all. No, they they were art collectors, modernist art collectors, and that's why I didn't understand why. Do they come to me? I mean, yeah. <laughs> for their collection, which is, I don't know, Joseph Boyce, I don't know whether you know, or like Andy Warhol, that kind of yeah. rubbish, I think. You know. um, oh, it's it's interesting graphically, but that's about it. It's not not really great art. But no, but the the particularly the Hans Jürgen Müller, he he wanted that, and. Um, and he, we had big exhibitions, big promotion. A lot of he had a lot of contacts because the modern art world is a kind of mafia, which you probably know yeah. about, and often very powerful because they have to do with banks and you know with mm -hmm. politicians and so on. And uh, because when you go to modern parliaments in Europe, you only see rubbish in, on the wall. This no, I mean, except Westminster and the French Parliament, but most modern parliaments are just junkyards of modern art you know, twisted metal I don't know but anyway they wanted it and they promoted it and then they got attacked like they couldn't they didn't expect this at all that they would be attacked for for promoting this and um, but they went even up to the the then chancellor who who wanted to promote the project and the chief of the then German bank the Deutsche Bank and um, and he wanted to help promote it despite the bad publicity, but um, but he was murdered. And um, 
briefly after. I mean, nothing to do with the project for other reasons, because he was critical of the of the uh, the early conceptions of the euro. I think mm. <laughs> he, he thought it was with a plan planned disaster, and uh, and then. Um, you know, the particularly the, there was like a breaking point where they had a big exhibition of the of the project in the Documenta in Kassel, which is the ma most famous modern art show. It's like Miami, Basel, you know, Basel, Miami, the design mm -hmm. design show, which Tom Wolf wrote about. Have you have you seen that mm -hmm. book? It's very funny. It's about modern art. It's okay. It's his book. <laughs> it's very, or before the man in full. Yeah, it's about somebody obsessed with pornography, so obsessed with pornography that uh, he, he can't get free of it. And uh, it's hilarious. But he's also a modern art collector and, and he has all these advisors of modern art to tell him what something, a nail on the wall, why that is now a great piece of art. Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. But um, so Documenta, the project was attacked by arson. Thanks God, the model survived, but the, and and the drawings on the wall were just photocopies, so there was no no great damage. But they were then so shocked that they you know, they started to think otherwise, and they used then they went to an uh, uh, to a German famous architect called Fraiotto, who who invented um, light tensile structures. You you may. You probably know he 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 was responsible for the roofs of the Olympic Stadium in in Munich. Yeah. You know yeah. this, yeah. And and but he was not you know he planned something which is more like in kindergarten. I I, I don't like it at all. Mm -hmm. And um, so but now the project is funny. The project is being dug out, and this Frenchman did the the rendering painstakingly for eight months he worked on this and because it's a lot of work mm -hmm. um, to do you know, and when you I did the drawings at a very small scale so once you blow that up in, in rendering it has to be you have virtually to it's many more levels of work than than a, a model which is the size of a big table <laughs> mm -hmm. but you know the ideas is it's really what is what you said. It's it's something which people appeal appeals to people without explanation or justification or doctoring them <laughs> and pushing them around, and uh, because that's what they what they are looking for when they travel. On the architect Albert Speer and Nazi architecture and culture. Well, it's still, you know, whatever the regime was, and, and criminal and, and uh, genocidal and uh, you know, motivated a lot by, by hatred. But on the other hand, it was the last, like the last wave of, uh, of classical culture, um, particularly also in urban planning, because after that there was no more urban planning. Mm -hmm. and, and Hitler, who was a gifted artist, I mean, whether one likes him or not, I mean, he was certainly a gifted rhetorician, <laughs> rhetorician, and <laughs> orator, and uh, but you know he articulated a, a pain. You know, I think he was I, able to intuitively <laughs> see suffering and then get people explain that to people in a way that activated something. 
and unfortunately the cure was meant uh, a lot of uh, slaughter but but then the also the interpretations of how hitler came about there's now a very interesting book about called hitler's american teachers the american genetics uh, yeah society and the people who articulated this well before him henry and, ford was a huge donor well, and a lot ford. of notable americans yeah. i don't want to accuse people i don't remember exactly i want to start accusing people but they're big names that were oh, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. genetic society saying hey and then you've got people in the reich that are citing that and being like look the american scientist this is based on science but it's it's american science it wasn't german science well there's now a lot of literature on on the intrication of uh, i forget now the name but the, um there's an american historian he died like mm -hmm. 20 years ago but who wrote about it's called wall street and uh nazi germany wall street and soviet Russia and Wall Street and you know, there are three books really showing the interconnection of capitalism with totalitarian regimes. Yeah. And um, I mean, without American industry, the Soviet could not have built their factories and, or yeah. German engineering. The, sure. Uh, the most advanced. Well, and it's country. Walmart that industrialized China. You know, they built these monorails and, and infrastructure to get people from rice paddies into factories to build American stuff. And yes. then all of a sudden we want to compete with this country after we built it. Exactly. You built your own nemesis. <laughs> well, that's built into the system, I think. You have to have a nemesis. Now, that is what, what, what we always say in, in the people around the C CNU. If, if our theory would be applied by good and bad regimes, Whoever, I don't mm -hmm. care, Putin, if he does this kind of planning, it will be better for Russia. If Biden would adopt this as national policy, it would be certainly do a lot of good. But where's the, where's the, let's say the, where's now the counter project to what is happening, you know, the post-Soviet or the post-communist uh, world, there's no more, at least before the people had a kind of hope, oh, maybe socialism would be better than capitalism. But now there's no more model. There's not, not even any opposition anymore to the- There's no curiosity and there's no imagination. I mean, even, and I keep taking, you know, what you're saying about design and, and making it about all, you know, aspects of culture, but I do think there's a relationship. I mean, you look at these movies I don't go see them, but you look at the stuff that's coming out and it isn't new ideas. It's not somebody who has a right, who has a vision and sat down and wrote a script. It's just, oh, you remember this from 1970. We dusted it off. Okay, it's reboot. I mean, yeah. it's just this cultural Ouroboros of, of, of garbage that's being recycled. But any vision that is new or creative or challenging or people attack that. Much like when you design Atlantis and, and it's it's there's a gut reaction where people know that this is it's a threat to this existing order that I'm that I'm entrenched in the hierarchy of and I've got to get it and it's a design you know it's a it's a drawing of a, it's physical a space uh, you know there's an, a very for me the most important because I worked I left university to work for the then most famous English architect called James Sterling he is now forgotten mm -hmm. but he was he did one brilliant building, very interesting, but but then most of it was rubbish and really horrible. And we and then I got I 
I went to this guy because I left university. You learn nothing at the university, but I thought this guy is really a genius. I mean, he did one building, which is really formidable. I never found out how this happened. He refused any theoretical debate. And I realized the then most famous architect had absolutely no clue what he was doing. <laughs> we, I worked for three months on the project for over 2,000 houses, housing units. And uh, after three months, I said, I can't sleep anymore. I, this will be a slum. And he got really, he said, you are wrong. You know, this is the way it must be and, and so on. It has to be. And so this went on a long story short. The thing was built and was demolished after 10 years. Over two Is it Pruitt Igo? No, no, no. It was it was like Pruitt Igo, not that bad, but but really rough. I mean, really rough. And uh, it was called the Rancon Town Center Housing by James Sterling. Mm. And um, so he came, we live in the same, I live in this old house. We both lived in old houses in, in London. We said, why can't we design like this where you live? And, oh, but you don't understand, you know, this is not, uh, Modernity is no, uh, a serial production and repetition and so on. And, <laughs> there's, uh, a, um, there's a there's well, a, a kind of crass American expression: "You don't shit where you eat." Exactly. Yeah. The design is for the client, That's not for where I want to live in my family. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't you can't flush flush it down. <laughs> no, this was destroyed. Now the the buildings were built by a loan of the Rancon Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. That loan matures in 2025, the loan to the city of London. So the English, this development company, which was government sponsored, is paying for buildings which disappeared 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, like, I mean, and, and that's, that is but, the economic system, you know, we, we and it's extremely short-sighted. Like the German war that uh, finished for the First World War finished in 2010, I think. <laughs> and how can a, a society survive such real? They are mental, mental disasters. Huh? And um, I mean, now also in America, you know, the crisis with mass murdering and so on. I mean, you will have more <laughs> on your hands than you can than you can manage. On the architect Quinlan Terry and Christianity. Uh, Raymond Erith, but he was like an old man and he was particularly considered as a fantastic draftsman, but as an architect, he wouldn't count, even though it was him who had rebuilt number 10 Downing Street. If he had not done 10 Downing Street, it would just be a modernist slum like they have everywhere. And so when I asked around, do you know Kunan Terry? I mean, it's interesting. Who is this weird? And people said, oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, he's a Christian. <laughs> so I said, since when? I mean, I'm not a practicing Christian, but I grew up that way. Since when is Christian being Christian? Is that outlawed? And that's exactly what it is, in a way, you know, the, the, <laughs> I mean, I wish I, I would be closer to Christians, but it's, you know, they are deconstructing now even what was the, 
what was something which stood on good feet. <laughs> no. We opened an enormous cathedral in in my project in Guatemala just the other day. In Ciudad Cayo? No, it's called Cayala. Okay, no. I, my the Spanish is not good. I, you know, I read it, but I, oh, I don't yeah. have many people that I converse about this with. But there, they still fill fill you know a thousand people in in for a church like this. It's weird. Why it doesn't happen there? I mean, like, <laughs> like yeah. Well, seaside. But, I mean, the seaside chapel is pretty full yeah. on Sunday. Yes. Yeah. Well, in United States, is much more is much more practice. Uh, mm. Practice than Europe is churches are dead. Mm. And I notice I grew up as a Catholic, and I noticed that actually a lot of my clients are or would like to be or come from that background. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there is something mysterious that the the, the scale between private life mm. and the scale you meet in a church in in a grand grand hall is is like a physical uh also a scalar a scale yeah. experience uh, which is obviously impresses something well I, I mean if you don't have an elaborate inner world or inner a rich richness vastness to develop self how do you build externally you know how do you have the vision for that you're just chasing trends and fads and what you're told to do and a pack mentality of you know where did you grow up? Because often the people I I relate to, they grew up generally or they experienced a, a very nice urban or, or rural landscape. And then they feel they lived something real, <laughs> which yeah. is not just fantasy. Where did you grow up? In, in, in Birmingham, Al Alabama. Uh -huh. um, so, I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of the architecture of the, the older city is, is interesting and historic. It's it's rare and then it's a southern city, but it was built by, you know, kind of northern industrialists. So it has a kind of mixture of texture. Um, you know, some stuff's nice, some some isn't. Um, you know, obviously the as a kid, the, you know, you spend all of your time in these uh middle schools, high schools that are just cinder blocks with no windows. It's a prison. No you know, window. vinyl tile, drop ceiling. I mean, who we, could who could have decided such a thing that uh the, the children would be distracted if they could see trees and light, you know, it's slavery. I I heard the story in, in, in Florida that it was for so that people couldn't see in, you know, so that the pedophiles wouldn't be excited like they're <laughs> <laughs> not window shopping. Yeah. I think he's got different problems when there's enough pedophiles to be waiting outside of the school. What also to have such people at command with such distorted minds, huh? I uh, in in the project in England I I had I did a master plan for a large school next to the next to our uh, project and to integrate that in the so that people can walk towards the school and so on. And I remember the chief architect of the of the district was very became a real friend and without him the project wouldn't have even started because you need somebody in authority to to push this without too many explanations and just saying this is all right. And um, so we presented this master plan and went to the to the board meeting. And uh, as we approached the, the head of planning 
of educational planning of the educational authority of Dorset approached came from the same parking and there were young there were girls and boys streaming towards the school and the, the responsible for the school for the educational authority in Dorset said showing the towards the children saying all material for rape so I thought who is this guy? I mean, this is the guy who is responsible for, because they were fencing in the schools. And I said, we need schools open. I mean, so they are in town, not not with fences and, and around, huh? because they are part of public space. Then we presented the plan. And after the, uh, the, the head was an, uh, a shriveled lady, I mean, really very unpleasant and arrogant. She said, you want to plan a a piazza in front of the school. But, you know, this is a space where boys and girls could meet. I said, yes, that's exactly the idea. She just walked <laughs> off angry. They're threatened by something that's very human and important to our humanity. What is, what is, <laughs> I mean, that's what humanity is about, is about meeting. <laughs> on sustainability in ancient and traditional architecture. So do you see things like, like lead design or whatever, is that kind of a distraction from a real project of a real sustainable architecture? The what the lead? Do you see things like, like they, here they have lead certification? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's industrial bullshit. I mean, because it seems like you're checking all these boxes to make your building green, but you're not preparing for a future without oil. You can't walk. It's not pedestrian. Yeah. It isn't It isn't built out of material that will last. So you're going to have to replace it. No, it's so consumption. It's, it's another wave of consuming environment. And um, because you know, if you have natural materials, <coughs> stone or, or brick or or wood you know you cannot build unless you use that is that was strangely the you know nail production 19th century was one of the first giant industries which changed architecture and by having cutting lumber into uh, very small formats whereas before you had trees you built carpentry out of heavy lumber huh? now that they had this industrial source where you produce standard piece of wood which you could nail together and that is strangely the nail was actually the first synthetic product which destroyed architecture because you can nail it into any nonsense and it still stands up it's like an mm. air like an airplane structure you can't turn it upside down it's, you can't fly through the air whereas a traditional carpentry which is just pegged you know, yeah uh, is it or, the Estonian houses that wasn't he using pegs to do this? Well, the, all traditional building uh, assemblage is always, I forget what it's called, isostatic, you know, so that if you don't assemble it correctly, it will collapse. Mm -hmm. You can't build an arch which is not a real arch, mm -hmm. whether it's a jack arch or flat arch or you know, a full centered arch or mixed linear arch, whatever they are called. They need to be constructed correctly, otherwise they don't stand up. 
-hmm. whereas you can make the most idiotic, useless shape, senseless shape, cast it in concrete or build in steel or, or with nailed lumber and it stands up for a while. But on the other hand, in the long term, it's subjected to so much stress that in the end they are eroded. When you look at, when you analyze close by modern concrete construction, post-war construction, it's rotting from the inside. I always quote them because people say you can't use arches, it's not modern. Huh. Arches are, are modern all the time because modern means of our time. When you build an arch today, it's modern. It's not, it's technical, it's just like scissors uh, are not a question of modernity, it's not the problem, it's whether they cut or not. Mm -hmm. But there is quite a famous example, the Nazis built 8,000 concrete bridges, flatbed, you know, pillars and flatbed like this. Mm -hmm. All these concrete bridges, which were German high-tech of the 30s, had to be replaced in the 70s and 80s because of vibration uh, creating micro fissures which led in mm -hmm. and rot the, the, the inner steel. You get those stalactites that grow as the water drips through the concrete mm -hmm. and leaches That's out the calcium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, very modern. But the only Nazi bridges which still work are. Uh, 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 steel, steel bridges, there's one in, in uh, Cologne, but above all, many on the motorways are the stone, are the, the arch bridges, concrete arches. Mm -hmm. They are cast in concrete, but they are arches. They look like traditional viaducts from afar. Mm -hmm. And so that even the arched form, the arch, is more uh, materially uh, solid than you know, all the modern inventions after. So it's not just, an, it's interesting that, uh, that the arch has not only an, uh, for us an emotional thing, but also is particularly st structurally absolutely unreplaceable <laughs> element because the sagging makes it actually more solid. Mm -hmm. Or any cracks compress the, you know, if something mm -hmm. opens, it's compressed by the, by the pressure. Anyway, yeah, the weight is kind of like water. You want to channel it down to the ground, like uh, the arch on the Gothic cathedrals. Yeah, and you don't need the reinforcement, steel reinforcement, which you need when you have flat. You mm -hmm. know, uh, so it, it only compresses. That's why Roman Roman concrete, you know, the actually the Pantheon in Rome is the biggest uh, concrete dome in the world. Mm -hmm. Is two thousand years old. You could actually roll that because it's a solid piece which becomes more and more solid uh, in time. And I saw a similar thing in Greece once in a ruin, which was not an official ruin, but there was a Roman a Roman theater uh, in northern Greece. And because of an earthquake, part of the amphitheater had broken away and lay on the ground like this with arches going <laughs> sideways with the legs, you know, with the pillars. Mm. And it lay there like for hundreds of years and it was absolutely intact. 
the construction is very interesting and also because people that's something i don't understand why people love ruins that's one of the things that Robert Bo Garrison says in the book is it's reminding us of this kind of existential reality that even the greatest monuments and, and to our own ego and will crumble and they evoke this really uncomfortable stirring in us to, to look at ruins. Um, and so anything that, you know, when you're kind of contemplating grandeur in life and you're in your uh, classical painting, you have to put, you know, modern people on these fallen columns to remind you that the, the modern people will one day be the, the, the ancient column covered in ivy. Yeah. But there's a counter example in, in Japan, the, the Ise shrine, the imperial shrine in mm -hmm. Ise is they rebuild every 20 years in wood mm -hmm. the same form you know that you know it it houses isn't that that's the one that houses the imperial katana the things given by the the sun empress and the uh mythology of the empire yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's no one's seen them that's wild that the construction workers everyone well, looks away it, when they I take went, it apart to rebuild i traveled there and you can't see it it's mm -hmm. in a beautiful forest and the the craftsmen they are dressed like angels in white cloth with wings i mean almost like with high shoulders mm -hmm. spectacular but you can see uh, smaller buildings which are done the same thing and it's always fresh wood so the building is never there's one in construction one which stands once mm -hmm. the 20 years is finished the one finished is being burned destroyed ritually i think they take it apart and then mm -hmm. the new one shines and so you have always like gigantic, full uh, wooden trusses, you know, and it's um, actually you can speak of sexy building. If ever there was a sexy building, it's these temples. I will send you uh, images. It's unbelievable. And uh, because and that is the interesting thing to that in order to have permanence, every generation has to rebuild it like human mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. 20 years, like generations. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Psychological also. Uh, and that is, I always compare that to, you know, this building is 1,000 years old, but in fact, the material is only less than 20, next to the Parthenon, which was destroyed 200 years ago by an explosion. It would probably still stand there. I know the archaeologists who, who, who now they repair it, you know, they like, like denture, ridiculous. I said, just rebuild it. Ah, but that would be faking history. No. The marble is still there in the, in the same quarry. In they built one in Nashville, I think, or, uh, or yeah, not Athens, not in Athens, yeah. Not bad. Not, well, it's concrete, but it's, at least you get the impression of the full But building. it's the classicists who would complain if you rebuilt it and you painted the statues you know, in the original colors, they were gaudy and, and, and very bright. And everyone would complain, no, it's supposed to be white. That's what classicism is, you know. Well, I think now there are enough classes who would support it. <laughs> but yeah. Unfortunately, the government is paying, you know, they have like a budget like for national defense to to turn that ruin, to restore it, not as a building, but as a ruin. Mm. It was the most high-tech building in the, ever thought of. When you have the, the column and the man, I forget now his name, but anyway, he, he showed me through the building site 
And, and then when you have the fluted columns, you have the columns with the fluting, the rills which are outside, and they have sharp edges. Mm -hmm. So he said, yeah, the looking glass, point counter, very strong looking glass. So follow the, you see, follow that, uh, that joint, which is the different drums standing yeah. on each other. Follow that line. And then there was one of the, the ridges, one of the irises, the, the vertical sharp edges had been broken away by a recent uh, earthquake, but just small damage. So follow, and the joint went through that damage. So follow that line. And you don't see the joint in the mm. damaged surface. It's so precise that the only thing which announces the joint is micro mushroom, some some you know, growth. growing in the in the water. Because in order, because they take these drums apart in order to restore and, and do the yeah. their fillings of marble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> computer, you need a computer to calculate the surfaces. But those surfaces were so precise of the drums adhering that it takes 48 hours for air to, when they lift it, for air to get into these joints, which are joint without mortar or without mm. any material. So it was like a perfect fit. So can you imagine the technological, the precision of, of uh, tools and, and mm -hmm. techniques? to create such a thing. I mean, aeroplanes are primitive compared technically. Mm -hmm. and Just the raw, uh, the technique to be able weigh, to do that. Every, every drum weighs, I don't know, 20 tons. On technocracy. I have to look it up. Well, that because you know the technocracies in whether you are in Iran or or in United States or Russia, the same spirit of technocracy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's a people have a disbelief that we've been we've been told to distrust our our, our feeling, our intuition, our, our felt sense that that isn't rational or that that isn't reasonable or that that is too utopian because if people felt that they would know that this is wrong that it doesn't yeah. feel good that it's not benefiting anyone that and and you're kind of shamed if you have any imagination or any creativity you're you're shamed into you know you don't try and have any faith that there could be a better world you know yeah whereas the better world is already there if you look around <laughs> that's I, I always say, you know, it's like having to teach people to fall in love. Mm -hmm. it, <laughs> they forbid people to fall in love. <laughs> hey, do you, Edward Edinger is another Jungian. Do you know, do you remember him? He's dead now. Edward Edinger. He, he wrote the book Psyche and Archetype. No. I'm not. He, um, one of Edinger. the things I thought was really interesting in Psyche and Archetype Edinger. is. Edinger, like Edinger, yeah. Ed. Oh. He he says that um, you know the the circle or the sun disk. Jung was kind of obsessed with these sun disks. If you read the Red Book or something, it's like the the earliest conception of the self 
and that before children have an ego when they're still two whatever they're kind of one with the universe they don't really know that they're a separate creature yet the earliest versions of what they draw when they draw themselves is a circle and so he has a study where he follows how kids draw who what they are all the way up as they age and it's like hundreds of different kids drawings and it always starts with a round object and then the round object splits into four parts it, it has that quadrant it's circle and then they'll add legs and arms and eyes and things later but oh. he says that that circle that's bisected by that cross is kind of one of those that quaternity is a, this old archetypal image and that that's something that the earliest depictions of the garden of eden and the descriptions of it was that it was a circle with four rivers flowing through it and four gates, you know, hmm, and that it's the beginning of that polycentric city, you know, that it isn't a grid. That... The center, center and periphery. How interesting. I, I, I'll find it. So we build these external things based on an internal map, you know, that requires intuition and a felt sense and a creativity hmm. that you have to trust. If you're not doing that, if it's all your ego, you're just chasing a trend and a and a, a competition and a community, and it's consumerism and you know uh, planned obsolescence. Unhappy consumers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's... On children and hope. <laughs> but you have you have children. Huh? I have two children, yeah. How how old are they? How old are they? Uh, Violet is uh, four and Wynn is one. Oh, gosh. Are you not scared for them? Because it's what you... I mean, the world they are facing, it's... <sighs> you, you won't sleep anymore. Huh? <laughs> it's very scary. I think that you have to... Mm. You have to be willing um, to have faith and if you teach your children not to be afraid of themselves, they'll see through these things. They, you know, I think one of the things I tell patients a lot is that the, the same way that you control your children is the way that you're setting them up to be controlled by the world. So if you teach them to hold their own authority, to feel their own intuition, to crush a creative vision, you're empowering them. But if you teach them authority is important, the priest or the president or that you have to the daddy, you know, then yeah, they're yeah. just going to go out and join a cult or a political movement or, yeah. you know, or if you teach them, oh, your relationship to the world is vulnerability, you have to be a victim or whatever it is, you're just setting that up, them up to be controlled by an abusive spouse or a politician or religious leader or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. if you trust, teach them to have authority to hold their own autonomy, then that's, you know, the best thing you can do. But that's scary. You know, parents don't want to do that. Uh, so you are an optimist. I... The, I don't know if that. <laughs> the, the, there's an uh, Austrian uh, child psychologist, it's called um, Michel Hüter, who wrote a book called Six Seven. What happens to children between the age of six and seven? Because you know, when children grow up, they start talk. As soon as they talk, they ask questions. You probably experience that every day. 300 questions per day. What is this? What is that? Why here? Why there? <laughs> when they are six, when they go to school, they, they are told, shut up and answer only, <laughs> only what you are asked. And this See, I never listened to that. I remember being angry at it and I didn't fight. I didn't make a scene, but I just shut down 
And I'm still angry about it. You know, you, that you have these people who are telling children not to trust creativity and intuition just because they have all this unlived life. They're afraid of themselves and, and they're, they're getting in the way of a better world. You know, sure, the Jungian conceptualization describes that pretty well with the shadow. The unlived life of the parent is the biggest force in the child's life because it's these things our parents never master. It's mm -hmm. all these places where they're kind of afraid to go. And then kids react to that same fear and learn that these places are forbidden. But if you really know yourself, you're comfortable with everybody. And it's the people yeah. who are the most violent and the most angry and the most uncomfortable with themselves that cause all the problems that you're describing. Yeah. Well, we were lucky to have good parents. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and, and your life's work. I appreciate it. It's inspiring. You know, those ideas <laughs> ripple. It's like you put this stuff out there. You don't know who sees it or uh, who it inspires. So I appreciate well, your time. Yeah. Your video will be will be is 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 very is a bomb huh? sorry <laughs> never your video on on the atlantis thing is is a bomb it's fantastic because it's really done for a large public huh? so, yeah I, I hope so um i i um do you mind if i take segments from the interview and then put them out you know as a any, as like a video oh no no i have no problem with that well thank you i appreciate it and i uh, will i'll talk to you soon Nice to meet have you a, again. Have a nice evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.